My mentor and I sit in front of one another. The weight of his words are palpable in the space between us. I come to him because I don't understand what I am seeing. I can feel myself searching for the answer that I'm running away from. Its truth feels too big for our generation to carry into the next. Change is here, he says. It has been for a while now. A particular type of change that doesn't ask us if we're ready to meet it, but rather the kind that goes on despite it all, where it is your responsibility to lean into the challenge. We are left with many challenges. I know this from the stories that he tells me, from my lived experiences, and from the stories that are never quite articulated out in the open, the ones that are living in our collective memory. We live in systems that are running out of time and cannot hold themselves up for much longer. The climate crisis sits at our heels and reminds us of its presence with each day. Our passing elders are taking our language and their knowledge with them. Our communities are relegating its members to the margins through practices of exclusion informed by anti-blackness and homophobia, among others that obtain power through someone else's dispossession. We see our loved ones struggle with alcohol and drug addictions. The residual shame and terror and heartache of residential boarding schools is too difficult to talk about in our homes, so we become subjected indefinitely to our intergenerational traumas. In the tumultuous times we have endured in the past 500 years, we, as indigenous people, have been asked to carry the burden of hurt we didn't create. It's difficult to remember who you are when you believe that your story starts in 1492. But that story is simply a singular thread of a much larger one. Growing up, I recall looking to those around me and not seeing people of despair, but people who embody hope for both the seven generations behind and in front of us. A question that has been on my mind a lot recently is what it means to be born into a world that seems to be on its last breath. Your life is welcomed when you know it will not be sustained if nothing changes. I'm reminded of my people, the Anishinaabeg, and our creation story. After the first Anishinaabeg were placed on earth, Akeh, they soon began to forget their responsibilities to themselves, in their communities, the land, and all of creation. They began to fight, corrupted by their own greed and self-motivated interests. Gichimanitu, the creator, was dissatisfied with the lives the people were creating for themselves on Turtle Island, so they sent a great flood to wash the people away and start anew. My people often say time is cyclical, and I have no reason to dispute this belief. Oddly, I find myself sympathizing with the first people in the creation story because I see us in them. They ran to their end because they forgot the original instructions for how to be a good relative. I don't think we've turned away from our teachings and responsibilities completely by our own volition. I think this was at times our only means of survival. And I'm grateful that my ancestors loved me enough 
to sacrifice vital parts of themselves to make sure that I could live. But if this is the end of our creation story, I am in pursuit of figuring out how I can protect the next people's lives, even as mine dies. These systems will fall with us if we do not change. We were born into a seemingly dying world to understand that death can only know itself because life struggles against it to exist. I come to you as someone similar to you, unsure of what will happen, where things will go, how they will turn out, but also finding myself drawn to the hope that carries itself from generation to generation, feeling inspired by my peers who are willing to dedicate their life's work to continuing the fight to remember what we've been forced to forget, and sharing the same sentiment as one of my greatest teachers, the knowledge keeper before me, that there's a reason we've agreed to enter the world at this particular time. It wasn't until my junior year of high school when I came across my people's story that I began to make sense of why our generation and the generations to come have been asked to climb out of the brokenness surrounding us. I come from the time of the seventh fire. As do you. In the beginning of the seventh fire prophecy, there were seven prophets, the Anishinaabe of Turtle Island, and one eternal flame. Buju relatives, Aesakwain and Dijnakaz, my name is Abalone Shellwoman, and I welcome you to my podcast. Following our fire. I stand at the base of the Atlantic Ocean, and I feel the cold water brush my feet, almost like a relative I haven't visited in a while is teasing me like time hasn't passed at all. I send out my greetings to the water and pray for everything it holds. This water, for all that it has touched, was there when this story began. And now, this water is witness to my coming back to hear about what has been carried while I was away. I prayed in search of the spirits, my ancestors, and what to do next. They took me back to the starting point. They took me back to the first fire. Spirits rise from the water seated on the eastern shores of Turtle Island. My people sustain themselves through relationships with these shores, these waters, and this land. Through their relationships, they have created a home. A home in which they will soon come to understand is on the brink of undergoing deep change. And not much is said, only that if they do not move, and they do not do it quickly, they will face the kind of suffering that can only be stopped by death. This was, in fact, the first prophet of seven coming to tell my people about the journey they were going to take over the next 500 years. They were instructed to follow the sacred Migas shell, which would arise across the seven different stopping points. They would know they had reached the final resting point when they discovered the food that grows on water, or manomen, or as it's also called, wild rice. These instructions kicked off the Great Migration, the journey in which the seven fires were partially actualized. The Great Migration was completed during the time of the third fire. After various stopping points throughout Turtle Island from the first fire through the third fire, my ancestors found the place where the food grows on water. They found themselves on Madeline Island, which is in present-day Wisconsin. 
Fulfilling the prophecy they had set out to complete hundreds of years ago, the sacred fire was carried with the people and burned brightly once again. Up until this point, the seventh fire prophecy had primarily been about my people following each prophet's words to find their way along their migration. Once they had reached the final resting point, it was seemingly where the story would or should end. But that's not necessarily what happened. In the beginning, there were seven prophets who would come to the people. By the end of the Great Migration, they had only encountered three. So the question is, where does the story go from here? In the time of the fourth fire, two prophets came as one, each with two distinct messages that would be extremely difficult to untangle from one another. The first prophet foretold a light-skinned peoples who would soon appear. The prophet said that if they joined together and they honored the space of difference in terms of both existence and knowledges, their entanglement would prove prosperous for both peoples. The second prophet, however, countered the first message with hesitation. The second prophet confirmed that yes, light-skinned peoples would arrive soon, but they would wear the face of death disguised as brotherhood. They would come with weapons, yet appear to be suffering. Their greed for the land and its resources would drive everything they do. If tricked by these people, the prophet said, your people will face great suffering. And surely enough, the light-skinned ones arrived not long after. The Gichimokamon were coming. In Anishinaabe Moen, the name for white people translates directly to big knives. The Gichimokamon were coming to earn this name. And they were coming, quickly. The arrival of European settlers brought a new challenge for my people, and indigenous peoples widely. I visualized the time of the fourth fire as one of getting to know something in an intimate way, because I don't think you can accurately name something until you understand what's going on. In hindsight, we, the ones who now live a world generations between our ancestors who had the challenge of grappling with these newcomers, can easily name these interactions as the roots of settler colonialism beginning to take place on Turtle Island. We have the ability to name what would happen because we were planted directly in the middle of what came after these interactions. But my ancestors, our ancestors, had to see how the story would unfold as they were figuring out what it meant to be in contact with white settlers. I wonder what it must have meant to juggle between tensions of wanting to be open to the possibility of peoples coming together, but not wanting to make the wrong decision in the process. In the midst of this unchartable grappling, we find ourselves in the time of the fifth fire. Up until this point, most of what the prophets had told the people was specific to the Anishinaabe, but my interpretation of the fifth fire extends beyond my Anishinaabe ancestors and reaches more broadly across Turtle Island, which I think more accurately articulates the struggles that many indigenous peoples were contending to at that time. The fifth prophet spoke of the people enduring great spiritual struggles if they accepted the promises of the newcomers. The newcomers promised salvation and great joy in return for abandoning their ways indefinitely. The prophet said that if accepted, this would be the near end of the people. The sacred fire was vulnerable to burning out because there was a divide between indigenous people's ways of being and the life they were falsely promised if they accepted ways foreign to them. The teachings of the people were in threat of being forgotten. This, the prophet said, would bring future generations indescribable loss. 
The smoldering sacred flame of the fifth fire somehow carried itself into the sixth fire, if nothing more than by a small amount of light left. The fifth and sixth fire have the pain and constant struggles of our ancestors etched into their flames. Without faith in the sentiment that this was not the end, I'm not really sure we would have made it to the seventh fire. The sixth fire is the hardest part for me to tell because I recognize how much sacrifice had to go into making it through. I recognize the extent to which white settlers went to make sure we couldn't find our way through the darkness they had created. For those of us who may be unaware of what was happening at this time, I'm going to rapid fire some of the things my people amongst other tribal nations were living through. I recognize that this does not and cannot do each tribal nation's history justice, and it would be a disservice to all if I flattened the complex, particular histories of all indigenous peoples of Turtle Island. We each have our own stories to tell, and because of that, I encourage you to look further into those individual histories. So, starting in 1493, long before the Fifth and Sixth Fire, I want to take a second to talk about the Doctrine of Discovery, which was written by Pope Alexander in 1493. This document shaped the governing beliefs of many European colonizers and essentially informed their interactions with the land and indigenous peoples during first contact and everything following. The doctrine of discovery declared that when a nation discovers, and I'm putting that in air quotes, discovers land, they automatically have the rights to that land regardless of if it's already been stewarded by someone else. In this case, indigenous peoples. It's said that even if the original inhabitants of the land sustained themselves through the land, European settlers had the authority to expel any previous claims, or rather how most indigenous peoples would see it, relations, with the land. Pope Alexander believed that claims over the land were only valid if the ones overseeing the land were Christians, because he was sure that any other people's overseeing of the land would be insufficient to those, air quotes again, discovering it. The land, even if inhabited by indigenous peoples, would be considered terra nullius, or as that directly translates from Latin, empty land. To put it succinctly, white settlers arrived on Turtle Island with the intention of accruing land for extractivism purposes. The land was seen as a resource and tangible capital. The doctrine of discovery is a symptom of deeply held beliefs about land, indigenous peoples, and power. European settlers let the words of the doctrine of discovery inform all of their actions because they believed in the truth of these sentiments as much as Pope Alexander did. Of course, in order to obtain land, they had to deal with indigenous peoples, and they did this either through methods of attempted extermination or through making them subjects of the settler state and making sure that they were absent of any oppositional identities or beliefs. So just to give an idea of what was taking place during the time of the Sixth Fire, I'm going to give a few examples of how these thinking patterns manifested. One of the first few events that comes to mind for me is the Indian Removal Act of 1830, which was signed into effect by President Andrew Jackson and began an onset of forced removals for indigenous peoples east of the Mississippi River. This is just one example of a long history of indigenous peoples being denied access and relations with their homelands of which was more often than not enacted through physical violence against indigenous peoples by settlers. And indigenous land dispossession continued and was reinforced through the Indian Appropriations Act of 1851. This act established the reservation system and confined tribes to allotted tracts of land. Any land that was considered 
air quotes again, non-native territory, was opened up to white settlers without consideration for indigenous people's relationship with the land as spiritual and physical sustenance. Implementing the reservation system drastically affected many indigenous people's relationships with and dependency on the land for food. The U.S. government provided meager food rations for indigenous people, much of which consisted of foreign ingredients like flour, sugar, starch, etc. The only option for many tribes was to incorporate these ingredients into their diet or simply starve. Today, indigenous people in the United States have the highest rates of diabetes in comparison to any other race or ethnicity. Not only is the government directly to blame for this epidemic, but I think it goes to show how far-reaching the rippling effects of these acts go. And this is all intentional. Following that, we have the Dawes Act of 1887, which was proposed by Massachusetts Senator Henry Dawes. This act pushed for the privatization of land within reservation boundaries. This act broke up communally stewarded land into smaller, privately owned chunks. And in order to be eligible to own land, indigenous peoples were required to register as Indian on census documents, which was essentially some of the first materializations of blood quantum. Indigenous people who are considered, quote, less native had a better chance at securing land while those who were deemed, quote, full blood or nearing that marker had a more difficult time buying land. Any land that was not bought was opened up to white settlers, and this often was given to white farmers. And of course, something that has been getting a lot of attention in the media recently, we turn to the United States and the Canadian government's support and hand in residential boarding schools. Starting in 1879, the first residential boarding school in the United States was created by the military officer Richard Pratt. The Carlisle Indian Industrial School had one goal, and that goal was to kill the Indian, save the man. This school kickstarted a national spreading of these types of institutions, where indigenous children faced indescribable abuses, treatment, and in a lot of cases, died as a result of. Indigenous communities understand the lingering shame, hurt, and trauma we continue to grapple with today as a result of these institutions. And only now is the rest of the world coming into that understanding, too. In 1956, the Urban Relocation Act was signed into effect. This act was posited as an act made with Indigenous people's best intentions in mind, saying it was, quote, intended to create vocational training for Indigenous peoples. Jobs with a livable wage are still difficult to obtain on many reservations, but were especially difficult to come by on many reservations during this time. The government used the Urban Relocation Act to move Indigenous peoples to designated areas, mostly metropolitan areas such as Chicago, Denver, Los Angeles, Seattle, and Cleveland, for example, for proclaimed job opportunities. It turned out, however, that this was rather a ploy by the government to move Indigenous peoples away from their reservation, places of strong tribal culture, and assimilate them into mainstream society, also known as white society. Again, I'm speaking in very broad terms here. Please know that this does not even touch the surface of the harm inflicted upon indigenous peoples during the time of the fifth and sixth fire. My goal, at the very least, is to characterize the government's place and white settlers' place in the time of the fifth and sixth fire. And the fact that I've barely touched on the plights of indigenous people individually and collectively speaks to the difficulty of enduring these two fires. In the words of the sixth prophet, it would become apparent during this time that the promise was false and caused more harm than good. 
those who accepted the promise of joy and salvation would take their children away from the teachings of the elders, and in turn the elders would lose their purpose. They would become sick and die, and they would leave their communities reeling from the absence of the knowledge keepers. Because of this, the people would suffer greatly. The suffering would last for generations, so much so that the cup of life would almost become the cup of death and grief. And as we know now, all of this came true. Things such as residential boarding schools, assimilating into Christianity and intergenerational trauma are only a few of the difficulties indigenous peoples continue to contend with in the present. The struggle of this time is undeniable, and there is no room for interpretation or argument against. The lives of my ancestors during this time ask grave sacrifices of them, sacrifices we still feel the effects of today. And that's why it's so important to me to find hope in the fire we find ourselves in, the seventh fire. Long before any of us knew where this prophecy was going to take us, the seventh and final prophet came to the people. It is said that the seventh prophet had a different aura to them and a sparkle in their eyes. When the seventh prophet came to the people, they told them about a time in the near future when the waters would become so poisoned, the animals and plants would become sick and begin to die. The forests and prairies would not be strong enough to give the gift of life through clean air, and the practices and beliefs of the light-skinned ones would have a powerful effect over the minds of all other peoples, and this was to their detriment. This message was raw and to the point because this is where we find ourselves. But, the prophet said, this doesn't have to be the end. In the time of the seventh fire, a new people will emerge with the purpose of bringing healing, hope, and remembrance to their people and beyond. The new people will recall the original instructions gifted by the Creator and look to their elders to help them find their way back along the trail of what their ancestors have left for them. But by this time, some of the elders will have passed into the spirit world. Some will point them in the wrong direction, and some will stay silent out of fear. This is when it becomes crucial for the new people to allow themselves to be guided by their spirit rather than by their ego. If they listen carefully to everything around them and inside them, they will retrace their ancestors' steps, finding and reigniting teachings in themselves in the process. The quest to make and rekindle their light in the looming darkness will bring the people great healing and prosperity. This, however, cannot be done alone. While the new people have a responsibility to their people, the Prophet extended this responsibility to the light-skinned ones, or white settlers as well. The Prophet said that during the time of the seventh fire, white settlers will be given a choice between two roads. The first one is green and luscious and harmonious, while the second road is blackened and charred and cuts your feet when you walk on it. If they choose the first one, Remembering why they were put here and their responsibility to care for all of creation as well, there will be a new union between all beings. This road will light the eighth and final fire, bringing eternal peace and love for all. If they choose the latter, however, all of creation will suffer greatly, including them. This is the road we are on, and if we do not change, the message becomes one of life or death. This story, and I don't consider it to be a story of just the Anishinaabe or indigenous peoples of Turtle Island, is asking each and every one of us to collectively take up the responsibilities that have been left to us. 
The seventh fire is asking all of us to find our ways of being good relatives to one another and the rest of creation. And although I'm not exactly sure how we're going to get the job done, I know it's in the hands of people who have a love that extends beyond our lifetime. This love reaches seven generations behind and seven generations forward. It's the same love my ancestors carried with them to ensure someone lived to tell about their struggles. Our voices, which is often something we claim to be our own, echoes the voices of the thousands of ancestors who walk behind us and the thousands of relations who will find hope in the stories we're creating now. Those of us who are only now beginning our process of becoming and figuring out our place in this story, we were always meant to end up here, born from the flames of the seventh fire. I can't tell you why. I think figuring it out is a crucial part of the journey, but I trust this to be true simply because I see it every day. The people of the seventh fire are not afraid to navigate through the darkness we've been born into. We're not afraid to warm ourselves against the cold. We're not afraid to share our warmth with those around us and ensure their life too. The flame of the seventh fire lives within us and we're not afraid to feel its life. And in that same breath, we have to recognize that we would not be able to pursue our work without recognizing the people who have protected our teachings and our wisdoms and our ways of being through extremely challenging times. It would be extremely difficult for me to understand my place within the overarching narrative without first recognizing how often I return to the words of my elders and ancestors to guide me. And the seventh fire prophecy continually underscores the importance of generational linkages. None of this work can be done in silos. The seventh fire prophecy actualizes itself through community and relation making. And we, the people of the seventh fire, can only actualize ourselves through community and relation making, especially with the help of our elders and knowledge keepers. We need them as much as they need us. We see this through my people's great migration story and the painful fifth and sixth fire. None of us can sustain ourselves if we're containing our hearts to ourselves. The sacred flame takes many a hand tending to it to keep it alive, to keep us alive and always aware of what it is that we're pursuing. So I guess I see following our fire as a podcast doing two things. One being a space of hope and light. And I hope to do this through raising up indigenous youth who are continuing on the work of being a good relative, however that looks. And second, I hope to intentionally create space for indigenous elders and indigenous leaders and knowledge keepers. And this means anyone who has had more life experiences than us, indigenous youth, who we have the gift of learning from. And I want to continue strengthening the link between all of us because I think it's so important that we recognize how much of this story is based on relation making and connection. And the format of this podcast will be interview based and it'll switch back and forth from interviewing an indigenous youth to interviewing an indigenous elder or knowledge keeper or leader. Because like I said, the seven fire prophecy lets us know that we can't do any of this work alone or without each other. And so I hope that this podcast will be a space of learning and curiosity and dreaming and radical imagining and remembrance and love. It's so easy to remember the struggle that's inscribed in our stories. But that struggle is balanced by ancestral love and is rooted in hope and faith. 
and belief in the future we will walk into and the future our coming relations will inherit. Each of us is figuring out what it means to follow the fire, to follow our fire. This podcast, I hope, will be a space where we can walk together, hand in hand, and dream of where to go next, just as my and our ancestors once did. We are prophecy alive. We are the people of the seventh fire. Chimigwitch relatives for sharing space with me today. It's been an absolute honor and dream come true to finally share this project with you all, and I can't wait to see where our hope takes us together. I hope you'll join me for the first official episode in the coming weeks. Our first guest is someone I and others are deeply inspired by, and I can't wait for you to hear our conversation. Please make sure to follow at Following Our Fire on Instagram for episode updates. And quickly, I'd like to take some time to verbalize my gratitude for those who have had a part in seeing this project come to life alongside me because this quite literally would not have been possible without all of these beautiful human beings. I want to say chi miigwech to everyone who has supported me in the dreaming, planning, and creating of following our fire. I want to say thank you to my family especially for never asking me to contain my dreams and providing me with the type of love I want to give back for the rest of my life. I want to thank Nemishomis and Nukomis, Pukachinanese, the man who walks alone, and my grandma Donna, whose spirit name I think would have been Benishikwe, or Bird Woman, because of her ability to fly despite everything that tried to contain her. They both journeyed into the spirit world in the summer of 2021, right before I truly began working on this project, but I know their guidance and love is all over it. Until we meet again, I love you as much as I miss you. I want to say thank you to my beloved friend and mentor, Selena Martinez, for believing in this vision before I fully could. You have supported me in this podcast from the first time I introduced the idea to you in November 2021. We created this together. Chimigwech to the amazing artist behind the cover photo, my friend Mikiala. Your creative vision and attentiveness to both the details and bigger picture is a gift that I'm extremely grateful to be in the presence of. Thank you endlessly for helping me see this story with your art. I also want to thank all my friends and community members who have helped me in different ways, from teaching me how to edit the audio, shout out to Ethan, or letting me practice mock interviews, shout out to Sarah, or to hyping up the podcast when I began sharing the idea. Your support means more to me than you know. And lastly, I want to thank the ones who have created these stories, carried these stories, and helped them live on this long. Get you monitor to creator spirits, seven prophets, and my ancestors. I want this podcast to create the kind of love I have felt from you since my entrance into the physical world. This is my way of letting you know I hear you all around. Chimigwitch for teaching me how silence makes music. Chimigwitch. Thank you all. Gigawabaman.